Welcome to Tranos and the Lived Experience, a podcast confronting current events, politics, comedy, and calamity, all from the perspective of a trans titaness. She's a verbal black belt, skilled in the art of roasting, the hellmouth, doomsayer, CEO of the Amazon position. Here's your host, Cameron Ellen Turan. Welcome back to Tranos and the Lived Experience. I'm your host, Cameron Ellen Jarrell, also known as Tranos. Say that shit or I'll slap you in your fuck. Today, we talk about passability. Now, you're asking what passability is. Passing. Passing in the trans community is the ability to stealth while surrounded by cis people. I use another key word stealthing. Stealthing is when you can pass as a cisgendered person or. For those who feel in danger, um, like myself sometimes, uh, have the ability to pass as male in public spaces. Um, not not very convincingly, most of the time. Uh, it's kind of hard being a six foot tall, um, visible male with 30, like 38D breast. But, uh, and this voice seems to lend to, uh, not to mention... Um, just my experience as a professional wrestler being able to um, mimic the movements of males uh, down to like eye twitches and fucking <laughs> uh, cold stares. Um, passability has always been a thing um, that kind of plagues me. Um, as a trans woman who transitioned later on in life, uh, the vision of what I would be as a woman when I grew up is uh, altogether very different from what I actually look like, um, especially after um, trauma from being attacked. So um, I always wanted to give off. uh, I told myself when I began transitioning that I was never going to achieve the vision in my mind, that my body would never uh, line up with the vision that I had as a child of what I would have grown into had I not been testosterone poisoned. So I resided to be otherworldly. Otherworldly doesn't necessarily mean ugly or mannish, but in my vision of what I currently uh, would like the outcome of my body's changes to end up at, it is otherworldly and it's the way that I describe beauty the way I see it. Um, I'm six feet tall. I have broad shoulders. I have a fighter's build underneath all of this depression weight. And um, I always wanted to try to embrace that. Now, here's sort of the impact of dysphoria um, from society. Um, my hands always come into question. My voice always comes into question. My height, the size of my feet, um, uh, the muscle tone. Uh, my ability to lift large things. And um, a lot of people would just uh, chalk that up to me being assigned male at birth. But those things, um, my body has changed enough to where male strength privilege is not a thing for me anymore. It's not. Um, I can lift and my um, muscle output is the exact same as a 40-year-old woman at my size. Because I am a 40-year-old woman. Now, passability in public is um, considered a privilege to most um, because they think it gives you favor. Now, in my um, experience, in, in my opinion about passability in public, is it allows you a certain level of safety. Knowing that the pendulum swings both ways, sometimes passability can get you injured as well. Lots of attacks um, on trans women happen because they are able to pass so well that when males are informed of trans identity, they become hyper-masculine and that, that moves into toxic masculinity and that causes death. Um, walking out into the world on a daily basis, we're going to go... Um, with my average day. So, uh, I wake up in the morning, I place both feet squarely on the ground. Um, and my brain immediately reminds me that my gender identity does not align with my body. 
I then disassociate for 15 to 20 minutes where I envision what I should have been, which is just a torture on my brain and a torture on my heart. It also causes lots of anxiety, um, depression, things of that matter. This is the point where most people get up and they walk downstairs and say hi to their family and have breakfast and all of those things. Um, I don't have a family. Um, I don't really have a very large support system other than like people that I work with and um, people that I've worked with in the past. Um, so it's not like it's less than a handful of people. Um, I spend a majority of that morning alone talking myself into, hey, do we feel well enough to shave? Hey, do we feel well enough to take care of ourselves today? And the answer most days is no. <laughs> the answer is most days is no. Um, being confronted by things um, uh, just historically on average um, at my job. Um, I am misgendered uh, upwards of 24 times per day. And um, that means I am misgendered 367 to 370 times uh, every uh, three months. Every three months, 300 and something times. And that blow triggers dysphoria every single time, no matter what your intentions are. And then it makes me contemplate what life would be um, if I was passable. Um, there was a time where my otherworldly uh, um, looks, I don't know which word to use, my otherworldly looks would be considered passable in certain areas in certain situations uh once again i'm six feet tall so i liked wearing like um goth boots and i was pretty much like the black alvira pretty much and i had like a uh, storm gray hair with black streaks in it and um i'm tall big boobs big butt at the time a little waist um if you didn't hear my voice and you were less than 15 feet from me i was very passable well more than 15 feet away from me and in the situation where I felt that I passed the most, I was attacked. And that caused a weird upheaval in my brain. What happened was that because of my lack of actual passability um, and my attempt at it, my, my mentality saw it as a failure. So after being attacked and like not really wanting to go into that long story, you've probably heard that in another episode by now but once I was in the healing phase I mean, I was in the hospital for about 40 days um, once I was in the healing phase my body began to heal but my mind never did so what uh, happened was that I managed in my trauma to convince myself that the attempts at passability failed and that is what got me harmed but the reality is is that toxic masculinity is what harmed me and our um, ability to dehumanize someone for difference is what caused me harm. And I know that rationally now, but as they say in the hood, the cake already been baked, baby. Um, I'm plagued with uh, thoughts of not being pretty. I am plagued with thoughts of how much weight I've put on. Um, often like disassociating due to the, um, sensory overload of like living in a body that just doesn't feel right all the time. Um, sometimes I look at my hands and feel totally detached from them. And, uh, this has caused lots of turmoil, um, in the four years since my survival of the attempted murder on my life, uh, for existing, um, case in point, agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is a disorder that can sometimes be temporary that uh, almost every trans woman is visited at some level um, for some period of time. Um, my isolation and agoraphobia is on and off and has at times lasted upwards of two and a half months. That's two and a half months of staring at four walls and going through the same routine of waking up, um, informing my therapist, informing my job, 
uh, being put on medical leave and then just kind of hiding from the world. And in the midst of doing that, and a pandemic began. And in that pandemic, I was further isolated, um, isolated at work from people, isolated um, at home. I didn't really get out a lot because we weren't supposed to be out, um, which was a cop out, which I thought was a lot of people had problems with uh, uh, isolation in the beginning. A lot of people did. And um, it was uh, it was really easy for me to stay home. It was really easy for me to not be in the streets. It was really easy for me to not frequent things that I used to frequent, to not go places that I used to love. Uh, no more, like not going for walks, um, not uh, going to the coffee shop, my favorite coffee shop. Um, those things just became really easy. And in doing those things, I became um, depressed. And uh, in Rochester, New York, we all suffer at uh, a point in time. We all kind of suffer a seasonal depression and we all kind of go through it at the same time. We're all aware of it, um, but we just kind of like dredge through it because it's just part of being a Rochesterian and living in a place where it's cold like the five months out of the year or it's snowing five months out of the year. So with that, I started um, uh I started experiencing um, more disassociations, loss of time, um, kind of like just drifting off into daydreams. And there came a point where daydreams uh, were more uh, suitable than actually living. Like I can disassociate and dream about who I thought I was going to be and and where I was going to be. And that was enough for me at that time period and um, being overwhelmed once having to do things like go to doctor's appointments or leave my home would cause great anxiety for me. And when the anxiety started to kick in, so did the CPTSD and um, CPTSD also gave way to the dreaded 44. I call it the dreaded 44 because 44% of trans people contemplate suicide on almost a daily basis if not attempting it. So I developed suicidal ideation after being attacked and, um, uh, full disclosure, uh, my last suicide attempt was Thanksgiving. Um, holidays, I do not do well on holidays. Um, I'm aware of it and I try to prepare myself for it every year. And then, um, that time hits and you're just kind of cloaked with despair, being a trans person who doesn't really have a lot of family and at, at times uh, not even close friends, you seem, uh, you feel forgotten. Um, you feel left out, you feel isolated, you feel alone. And those things do not contribute well to suicidal ideation. Um, my search for passability, um, would cost me upwards of $90,000 and that weighs on me on a daily basis because there's this thing that um, uh, some cis people who have the curiosity beam or the curiosity phase of being around a trans person, they say these things and they don't really think about it. Um, I was um, talking to someone on the phone and we were kind of like working on a contract. I work um, with an organization um, that I helped start called Legion. And what we do is we advocate for employment discrimination and trans rights in the workplaces of Rochester, New York, which is very hard because this place is saturated with transphobia, especially workplace transphobia. So I'm having a conversation with this person and they were like, well, if you're so, um, if you're so uncomfortable, why not just go and get the surgeries? Now, um, contrary to cis belief, there is no trans McDonald's drive through that we can just walk through and come out the other side. Uh, not all of us have Caitlyn Jenner's money. So some of the things that I would like to change about myself are just financially unattainable. Now, going through the, the depths of that and putting myself um, 
through lots of anxiety and hoping against hope that um, someone would care because we live in the Ellen DeGeneres era where you can just like go on a talk show and, and tell somebody what happened to you and hopefully um, they will help. But nine times out of 10, the people that they're helping are just white people or feel good stories during Black History Month. So if anybody's looking to bring on a trans person to help them out this Black History Month, you got 27 days. Holla at your girl. My name is Cameron Allen Jarrell, also known as Tranos. Help a bitch, build a bitch. But, I digress. A little bit of humor there. I would um I would say like don't don't do things like that in conversations with trans people, especially if you uh can visibly see the signs of a person kind of going through a dysphoric response. Um I've had uh well, right after I got attacked, um Shout outs to Hannah for being a piece of shit person. Um, I'm not going to say your last name, but you know who the fuck you are. Um, when I was attacked, uh, this lady lives next door to my uncle. And um, this was when me and my uncle were on good speaking terms. That is a story for another time. But let's just say it involves black Christian culture and the existence of trans people. So I was at his house and it was like kind of like my first time out. And I just kind of went over there because I wanted to be around people. But I also didn't want to be around people who weren't family. And I thought like, hey, Bastion, self, a safe place to go. Maybe you can go over to your uncle's house. He didn't seem too weirded out by your existence. Um, so I go over there. I'm limping. Uh, I am uh, hiding a colostomy bag at the time, which no one knew I had for months because of the embarrassment of having to have one from being beat up and sexually assaulted. So um, I'm sitting in his backyard and... We smoked a blunt because that's what we fucking do. Because if we're not going to talk about feelings and the interpretation of what my existence might mean for him, we're going to smoke blunts. That's how we'll avoid that conversation. So he goes in the house to get us something to drink. And his next door neighbor, her name is Hannah. She peeks over the gate every once in a while, like fucking Wilson from fucking Home Improvement. <laughs> she peeks over the gate and she goes, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, all right. She's like, I saw you uh, limping up the driveway. Are you OK? So I like briefly explain what happened and her response was well maybe if you looked a little more like a real woman they wouldn't have done that to you why don't you just go like get some surgeries straight face she said this to me straight faced now uh, um this is the part of the show where i issue a warning if you walk around casting that kind of judgment on trans women you deserve the hands like straight up. Now, there's a lot of talk with all this, like talks about like how trans women uh, have an advantage and all that other shit and uh, th that uh, we shouldn't be fighting other women. Um, my only advantage over another woman is that I'm a trained fighter. I'm a trained boxer. I'm a trained professional wrestler. And if she spent less time playing with Polly Pockets and trying to fucking hop from boyfriend to boyfriend, she would have the same amount of training as me. So if you ain't got the same amount of training as me, but you write checks with your mouth, like, I mean, you should catch these hands. I got titties. You got titties. Square up. Now, see, a lot of people aren't going to believe in what I just said, but like I that's how I felt. I didn't put my hands on her, but that's how I felt in that moment. There was just such a, 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 a underlying rage in me like that. She didn't understand that what that comment, what what that like that opinion did to me like how it lent to what was going to happen to me for the next like two and a half three years that single moment made me so dysphoric that in that moment i decided that when i healed i was just going to hide i wasn't going to care as much about my appearance i wasn't going to try as hard to make myself feel better because I knew once leaving the house that even if I felt really great and I thought I looked really presentable and that I was passing for the day that I was I could still be attacked I could still be killed um in the midst of me being attacked uh the national average for the age and life expectancy of a trans woman dropped by four years it used to be 35 it is now 31 and um, I still every day kind of think about that conversation and the effect that it had on me. And um, looking in mirrors uh, bothers me. Uh, going out with people who 
uh, say they care about me bothers me. Um, when someone tells me I'm beautiful or that I'm gorgeous, my brain immediately tells me that they're only saying that because we're standing in the same room. Um, and it's not to take away from if they are being sincere. I just never feel it. Um, November was, uh, like I said, it was the last um, suicidal attempt that I had. So uh, it's kind of like a reset, like just like uh, being a drug addict. Like I have to work on um, my suicidal ideation on a daily basis. I've been hospitalized recently. Um, when I feel it coming on, I try to put myself into a place where self-care is possible. And at times, the only place where that is possible is in the treatment center. Um, that's not really how I want to live my life, but that is what needs to be done to make sure that I continue to live my life. Um, there's a lot of real friends who uh, count on me. And there's a lot of people in my organization who uh, count on me and, and see me as an example of resilience and I would be cheating them if I was to give in. Not saying that, because um, you hear people say things like suicide is cowardly. Um, suicide is desperation. That's what it is. Nothing more. It's desperation. It is a person who has been pushed so far that they don't see redemption in sight and my ability to feel it coming on and talk myself down and talk myself out of it is literally one of the things that has um, kept me alive now. Um, yeah, this holiday season was uh, pretty rough for me and Christmas was also just as bad. And then the day after Christmas, um, a really close friend of mine died. And it put me into such a dark place that I started thinking about what is it that's driving me to feel this way on a daily basis? How will this, and it sounds selfish right now, um, how would the loss of this great man lend to my suicidal ideation? And I want to say this, um, this person, this person that passed, uh, uh, world renowned, um, great man, great husband, great friend, great father, um, Jonathan Huber, may you rest in peace. Um, literally like, uh, six months before, <laughs> like, like six months before. He had this uncanny way of knowing when I was in a really dark space. And it wasn't like I called or talked to him about it. Um, we 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 didn't talk every day. But when we were able to talk, it was always a, a, a great experience. Always a good catching up. Very uh, easy person to talk to. He was a great listener. And he was just very wise. And a lot of people didn't give him credit for how smart and tactful and sensitive he was of other people's needs and the world kind of really didn't know about that side of him in its re in its full its fullness until after he passed and I hope that at some point when me and him had our conversations he realized that there was a lot of situations in our uh, 20 year friendship where he saved my life and had no idea and um that weighs heavy on me now and there will be um a future episode about john huber um also known as Brody lee there will be a future episode about it but i am just not in a place um and actually being in my recovery right now i am not in a place uh to speak about it now but there's only um honor and 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 warm feelings and um, a loyalty to like his legacy that I feel um when I think about him and, and there, like um there's lots of people who have been in my life um who early on because I've been um I've <clears throat> I redeveloped suicidal ideation the first time I felt um suicidal ideation based upon passability was at nine 
um, at nine, I realized that puberty was coming on because I went to school and I learned about puberty and I learned how it changes the body. And I realized that I was going to have to go through that because um, I didn't know that there was a way to change those things. I didn't know that there was a way to block it. I didn't know that there was a way to stop puberty from happening at least long enough for me to figure out if I was willing to go through it. And, um, when I turned nine years old, there was this everyday feeling of, I don't look like the other girls around me. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I so yearn for what I actually am, but how, who do I tell? How do I tell people? And like, I would have the annual conversation with my mom about why, why am I stuck in this boy's body? Why am I a boy? And it would just be, I would just be told that that's the way it is. And my brain would scream that that's not, that's not possible. How is it that I'm, um, I feel this way but I'm trapped in this. And a lot of people use the word trapped and um, my dysphoria and all those things uh, really um, lends to that word. Uh, my dysphoria makes me feel like I am piloting a plane that I was not trained to fly all the time. It makes me feel like I am behind the wheel of an, a stick shift car and all, all I want is automatic. So, um, the first time I felt that feeling of woe and dread and just kind of wanting to let go solely based upon passability was at nine years old and realizing on my way home on the school bus that I was going to have to go through puberty. Um, I struggled with um, wanting like to die and like not not wanting to at the same time just being like maybe there's a way there's a hope there's some change that could come and it just it never did and as I was a teenager I delved more into depression and self-harm and uh, drug use and all those things were a way of getting away from the fact that I would never pass as who I truly am and um, I met John around 20 years old and I met uh, his wife uh, around the same time we were all in the wrestling federation and there was one day where like I was kind of like on a road trip and it was me and uh, Dickie Sanchez and Amanda in a car and like she doesn't know this to this day I hope that she listens to this someday and hears it but like that day I knew that she cared and that she um kind of had like a view of who I truly am and was not judgmental at all we talked about a lot of things we talked about guys we talked about fashion we talked about things that normally a professional wrestler uh doesn't talk about like without being called gay or like made front of or like seen as a fucking fetished like crazy person and i was able to have those conversations with her with absolutely no judgment and like that conversation in that car that day stopped me from killing myself because i was like oh my god i, f I f found an actual friend in this place who sees me for who i am and in that moment i mentally pass And then um, being on trips with uh, John, who was uh, had this uncanny way of letting me know that he knew what I was. Uh, I, I don't think he ever told anybody else, but John used to rib me, as they say in the wrestling community. He would uh, say, oh, there's my old gay female friend, because I, he knew I was a drag queen uh, before anyone else did. He knew that I was... Uh, pansexual before anybody else did and he never gave me shit about it i never ever really had to come out to him when i came out as trans it was like the, it was like the huber family already knew you get what i'm saying it was like they already knew and they they already had my back and it wasn't like we were going to see each other every day but when we saw each other in between my transitions and my physical changes and things like that when we did see each other they were always like very heavy on the praise and very sincere about it and that's not something that you get as a trans woman in your mid-30s 
um, who is literally just chemically transitioning, a lot of the sentiment that I got um, outside of like true friends and, and true family. And like I said, I can literally count that amount of people on one hand. Uh, a lot of it was underhand comments, um, things like you make an ugly woman or you, you got to do something about that voice. You're never going to be able to find shoes in your size. No one's ever going to be tricked by the size of your feet. These are all things that were being said to me. And then people don't have an understanding of why suicide might occur in a trans person. It's not that we have some mental illness that comes with being trans. It's that society conditions most of us to literally almost hate ourselves. Even in the pursuit of authenticity at a time that should be very revealing and very personal and, and, and very uplifting for you. Because finally you're on the track to being who you finally should be. And I'm not necessarily saying that tran all trans people need to chemically transition. You don't. You really don't. But for some people, the dysphoric response is so great that something has to be done to save their lives. And that's what saddens me when I hear things about like the UK like banning like uh, uh, transitions for trans children not realizing that all trans adults were trans children and a lot of the turmoil and surgeries and and, and things that we have to go through as adults when we choose to, to, to transition like chemically and surgically a lot of those things wouldn't happen if we were put on blockers as children if adults listen to us but the, the outcry is always about, oh, save the children. Well, you really don't want to save children. You just want to harm trans people and you don't care how old they are. Um, I value the, the earlier um, time in my transition before um, my attack. Because after my attack, it just seemed like my mental health took a large uh, blow. And my emotional um, resilience has uh, lowered significantly um, year after year because of the repeated isolation and the repeated misgenderings, the dead naming, the, the, the people making comments about my appearance behind my back. Um, I've been accused by the wrestling world of doing this as a gimmick. Um, Certain motherfuckers were walking around telling people that this was about attention. Um, I heard you, uh, by the way, side note. Um, I've heard it so many times that I can't help believe it, but believe it. So the fact that um, you hang around a bunch of people and fool, like they don't realize that out of fear, that you talked yourself into and made it about like wanting to be friends with them that out of fear you were someone that they needed for almost two decades and then when you finally want to step into your authenticity it is turned into a professional wrestling novelty or it is the topic of conversation when no one else is around i see i had um a wrestler came out that I've known for a very long time and he came out as gay and you get questions from people like, did you know, did you know? Like, yeah, like I knew, but that wasn't for me to tell. Just like, I'm sure that people asked um, my closest family members and friends if they knew I was trans and I'm, I'm sure some of them did, but it wasn't their story to tell. And I appreciate that. But you get these weird fucking questions like, so so you're trans now. So does that mean like you've been looking at me? What you think I like hid the fact that I was trans because I was attracted to you. You put yourself too high on a pedestal, you goofy motherfucker. And that's not how the world works. Um, when I talk about uh, when I when I think about passing privilege and um, passability, I think about uh, a childhood loss. I think about like not being able to ever be a teenage girl. I think about not ever being able to have like my first kiss without it being controversial or my first crush without it being controversial or um, 
where my career as a professional wrestler would have went if I was much more happier about myself. What if I transitioned when I was in my teens and by the time I started wrestling, I was in such a place that I actually went beyond the indies because I resided to being the um, closeted pansexual trans person and the torment of that made me miserable. And because of my misery, I didn't work as hard as I could. And as much as people um, believe in this area, I should say, I'm, I'm going to toot my own horn. As much as people in this area believe that I'm a good wrestler, I could have been great. But then again, like the, uh, the juxtaposition would be, what if I transitioned when I was young and wasn't even allowed in the business? Because that was my number one fear. My number one fear about becoming a professional wrestler and being openly queer and, and, and closeted trans was that somebody was going to find out and then my opportunity to even get to the indies was going to be taken away from me. I had to fit in in locker rooms. So my passability as a identified male um I had to change that. I had to make my body hard. I had to like uh, grow in size. I had to get a deeper voice. I had to cut my hair. I had to watch my mannerisms. I had to check my lisp. I have a very, very, very heavy lisp. And I had to be aware of that. And only like I contributed my, my lisp mostly to having a gap in my teeth. But I was very effeminate when I was young. I was very. And my hands were very uh, uh, wavy. I was what, what they would call flamboyant. And that caused me lots of trauma as a child with the reprogramming and the uh, creating Gabriel Saint. And in the midst of um, thinking about those things, it's just when I think about passing. It makes me um, anxious and it makes me afraid that no one's ever going to like actually like see me for who I am or love me. Um, most of the relationships that I was in, there was love, but there was so much hatred of myself that I couldn't have possibly been in love with anyone. And a lot of people will take that in a lot of the relationships that I was in. There was a love a mutual care for each other but imagine where i would have been if i was able to pass as what i am as how i feel as who i should be um a lot of my relationships pushed me into the role of protector pushed me into the role of man of the house pushed me into the role of uh the 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 the, the hero the hero masculine like, oh, I'll take care of us and I'll weather the storm for us and all that other stuff. And on the inside, I was just breaking apart because I was playing a part that I was stuck in. And I didn't see a way to get cast in the role I truly wanted, which was just being Cameron. And looking back on all of that now and feeling like I should be in a better place was all railroaded by my attack. The aftermath of my attack has taken uh, three, uh, three and a half years away from my life and has um, at times rendered me uh, emotionally inept, uh, mentally inept, and uh, sometimes it's just too much. And a part of having this podcast is being able to have these conversations and talk about these things more so to help other people, but also it's, it's cathartic for me. Some of these things that I'm talking about, I've never told another person and I don't have a lot of opportunity to do that because another um, offshoot of being a um, troubled trans mind of, full of tra trauma and rage is that I don't um, connect in relationships. Um, I don't trust most of the friendships uh, that I've had over time. I don't trust a lot. And that's kind of why like the loss of um, the loss of John hit me so heavy. Oh, cause like I said, like we don't, we didn't talk every day, but I knew he cared. I knew that like my transition didn't change 
the way he treated me. I know uh, that uh, my transition didn't change the way Amanda saw me or our, our space under the shady tree. Um, John still stayed my friend. Like me and Amanda were still like Heather's and um, a lot of my friends um, like and my foster brother and my um his wife um my friend Fred that's uh that's it <laughs> like you know what I'm saying that's it I went from having uh fans and acquaintances and people that I thought were like really close friends um um my friend Rob Sweet and his girlfriend um uh, well his fiance to be totally honest with you uh to be continued that'll happen soon I'm gonna be there when we're gonna get drunk um it's a handful of people and when my transition first began um I had like this Mary Tyler Moore kind of like uh attitude about it like oh everything's gonna be great once like this transition ends and then I had to come to terms with my transition will never end I will be on medications for the rest of my life, I will be self-conscious and aware of when I'm not on every day for the rest of my life. And um, a lot of the turmoil and things that I feel now is based upon the treatment that I've got in that time period. Um, transitioning in the beginning, I was like I said, I was really married Tyler Moore about it. And then reality hit me. Uh, my inability to pass caused me troubles at work. Uh, I don't look like your stereotypical uh, factory white girl, feminine. Um, I don't look. I don't look that part. So people value trans people more based upon their attractiveness, and because I was transitioning from a two hundred and seventy pound male to a hundred and eighty six pound female. People refused to let go of the 275 pound male, even though it was a husk that I created to shield the 186 pound woman. Um, because I'm otherworldly, there are things about me that like I like. I like blue hair. I have blue hair. I wear contacts most of the time, like when I'm not like wearing my glasses or if I'm out and I just want to like look pretty I wear like colored contacts and I'm a metalhead and I like horror music so I don't look the norm um I lost a job of 13 days after coming out and it was because of my passability I went to a uh <laughs> I went to a temp agency and got hired at this place that makes magnets I'm not gonna say their name <laughs> um and uh, I was not suited for the job at all. It's factory work, and I'm a mental health um, a, like facilitator. I'm a mental health um, worker, and uh, I had to work in a factory where they make magnets. And there was this uh, Danny DeVito-looking like woman, um, or not, we'll just call her Carla. Um, she looked like Danny DeVito, but we'll, once again, we'll call her Carla. She had like hairy knuckles and a mustache and she was going bald and she would comment about me not looking like a real woman to my face every day. And I reported to my bosses every day. Now, by this time, I had been working at this place for uh, two and a half months and um, every day I was being told, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Now, when it came to my passability, no one ever made a comment about me not being feminine enough. No one ever made a comment about that when the supervisors were around. When the supervisors weren't around, my shoulders were a, temp, uh, were, were, um, a topic of context and, 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 and communication. My um, hair color was never natural enough. I wore white out contacts most of the time in a place where you had to wear like protective eye gear and my eye gear was shaded because I worked around fire and sparks a lot. So you couldn't really see my contacts. So there was no need for that. Um, I like wearing makeup or at least I used to. And I, I did my nails all the time. And I like I wore like band T-shirts and like uh, cuff jeans for that fucking lesbian hardcore aesthetic because that's my shit when I'm at work. If I'm not at work, um, you can catch me looking like a fucking like, hell pinup at that time. And um, 
we had a meeting and um, one of my supervisors pulled me to the side and said that um, they noticed that I was not having conversations with other workers and wanted to talk to me about it. So I go into the office with them. I spill my guts. I tell them what's going on. I tell them how like I'm constantly being scrutinized for what I look like at work. And they bring the lady in and she was allowed to tear me apart physically for about five minutes she said my voice was too deep she said my feet were too big my hands were too strong now mind you this lady looked like danny devito starring in batman like she was shaped like penguin she had chester Copplepot's haircut she was wearing big bifocal glasses she had chin whiskers she had hairy knuckles she was short and she had big forearms but like i was constantly being told that i wasn't enough i wasn't living to her beauty standards and this was happening in front of my supervisor who did not step in at all and when i finally got the courage up to be like wait a minute why am i being scrutinized by penguin i was fired <laughs> i was fired so that put a deep-seated like hatred in me for passability. So I kind of started rebelling about like about it. Like I was like, I'm just gonna be otherworldly. I reside to be otherworldly. Otherworldly is beautiful. You don't have to look like Naomi Campbell, aging myself. You don't have to look like Mariah Carey, aging myself. <laughs> like you don't have to look like Faith Evans, aging myself again. Like you don't have to be what everybody's like um, view of what femininity is. Femininity is very. Um, it's very personal. It's very unique to your lived experience. And my lived experience is if I want to be a blue eyed uh, or a blue haired, white out eyes, uh, six foot tall, black, like goth wearing, like uh, like other world creature, a cryptid, then I get to be that because this is America and we get to do those kind of things. Not to mention the fact that I live on Monroe Avenue. Shout out to Monroe Avenue. Monroe Avenue is the place where freak where freaks are born. And when I say freaks, I say it in the most artistic and respectful way possible. I grew up in this area and it's very artsy. It's where all the skateboarders and the punks and the, the art majors and the music and the musicians and music majors all live. So it's very eclectic group of people. And we all like have our own flair of um, how we look. You could pretty much go to Rochester. And if you look at a person, you can tell if they're from the Monroe Avenue area. And that just kind of like branches out. So other than that, like just like um, kind of uh, wandering through this whole concept of I can be fired for how I look now. Uh, when I identified as a male, I wore a Mr. T haircut all the time with uh, designs and I had a huge goatee and I, I was I was lumbering and, and, and ominous. And no one ever had a problem when I looked like that. When I would wear like Mushuga t-shirts and like spiked sneakers, like and like I would wear like dark jeans and roll up my t-shirt sleeves so I could show my arms. Like no one had a problem with that. But God forbid I feel pretty one day and come to work. Some some people just knock you off your pedestal because they see that you are happy. And um I kept trying to tell myself that, like, just be positive and think through it. But like, the frequency in which passability becomes a problem for me um, has caused me a lot of problems. It has caused me a lot of problems. And even now, like, I sometimes feel this overwhelming, like, desperate urge for surgeries that I don't necessarily need. I don't necessarily need to have these surgeries. But mentally... Like, it's a survival thing. It's like something about my body, like, needs to change to make me feel comfortable. Because it's like having, like, um, restless, restless leg syndrome in your whole body. Like, my hands shake. I rock sometimes. Like, I, I just feel very, sen like, sensationally detached from what's going on in my body. Um... Shout out to uh, <laughs> shout out to the friends and family that tell me I'm pretty because I'm trying. I know you're not lying to me, but I'm trying to make myself believe it. And it's hard on some days. And 
Shout out to the friends that are actual friends. Um, the protectors. The people who haven't skipped a beat with me. The people who still rely on me like I rely on them. Shout out to you. Um, this uh, isolation uh, has been a lot for a lot of people in quarantine. Especially trans women of color. Trans women of color spend a lot of their time alone. And when they reach out to you, it's because they trust you. It's uh, because they love you. And it's because they might need help. So uh, do yourself a favor. And um, if you're not prepared for that kind of thing, keep the declarations of love and family to yourself. Because it actually means something to some to most of us. And it's it's the thing that hold that we hold on to most of the time. And as disappointing as life becomes in this situation, you don't need more discipline. I mean, disappointment piled on top of that for the sake of being uh, fake kind. I have lost more friends uh, than I actually um, really have. Uh, being called immoral, being called a liar, um, being called a deceiver and um, uh, ugly um, people being embarrassed to be seen with me or being are not willing to defend me or or pitying me fetishizing my my misery um, that's a thing that happens all the time and um, so if you ever got um, a phone call from me it's because I trust you if you ever got um if we've ever had a conversation um, in the midst of turmoil is because I, 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 I trust, I trust your word. If you tell me that I'm family, then I take you for that because I don't have one anymore. So I have to build a family around myself. And as a trans person who's going through this kind of turmoil, it's so hard to trust people and believe that people actually care about you because the whole world is constantly telling you that nobody's going to love you. Those kind of things were said to me by my own father. He said to me that I would never be his daughter and no one would ever love me and no one would ever see me as an actual girl because I'm just a mentally ill person. And that's the kind of trauma that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And... Um, it's just really hard and I've been droning on and that's a short talk about passability and the context of dysphoric response. My name is Cameron Ellen Jarrell and this was Tranos and the Lived Experience brought to you by NQO Studios for life. We out here. Um, this is the show that just wants to cuddle. Holler.